think sometimes while our brain is fantastic, it can come in and sabotage those desires, those inner desires that we want both presently and the future. And so I think we risk really being able to live to our full potential and really experience just, you know, the essence of what it means to to be human, Mm. right? By not doing that work. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, and I am delighted you are here for another episode with another fantastic guest. Today, we have Ashley Kwame on the show. She's a therapist, a trainer, consultant, speaker, wife, and mom. Before we get into this wonderful conversation, I have a couple favors. Number one, please, if you have been enjoying this podcast, if you find value in it, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcast and take a couple minutes to leave a review. They really do help. Second, if you haven't had a chance to check out my Money Story music album, I would love if you took a listen on Apple Music or Spotify. The album's called Change Making Money. You can search up Change Making Money and let me know what you think of the album. It was a fun project that I did with my good friend, Rutub. On today's episode, I'm excited to have Ashley, who is a licensed marriage family therapist and owner of BAM Financial Consulting. Ashley's clinical focus is helping couples navigate relational struggles and financial struggles. And through her consulting services and training for financial planners and professionals, she helps individuals understand their own financial psychology. We discuss the benefits of self-reflection, asking the big questions, the concept of the self of the planner, and how she uses emotional-focused therapy in helping people navigate financial changes within themselves and relationships. So get ready to enjoy this fascinating conversation as we dive into why you think, feel, and do what you do with money. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Ashley Kwame. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean, it's good to be here. I am pleased to have you on today. I have seen or I guess heard you on a few other podcasts and I've been diving into your work online and I thought we could have a wonderful conversation about communication, money, relationships and everything in between. But before we start, we were just chatting briefly about South Korea when you went to South Korea and your experience with the food scene. And I, on my list to do, I want to go to South Korea to eat as much as bibimbap and fried chicken I can and light beer. I forget the name of their breweries, but light beer with that chicken. You should definitely do that. You enjoyed it? 
I I did. I'm not a beer connoisseur. Their soju is delicious and very potent, but nonetheless, it's you go for the experience. But the food's the food is incredible. So thankful that I had the opportunity to live there for 18 plus months and uh, really get to dive in and experience the culture and the food. It was a lot of fun pre kids. (laughs) <laughs> uh, being able being able to do that. But the Bip and Bop and everything else there is really just fantastic. Well, speaking about a bit of culture, soju, how's Ashley's karaoke after some soju? I love karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after soju, I think I'm a really fun person, but I think that might be a better question for those that <laughs> I go out with and probably asking them. But my from my memories post soju, I think that I'm a lot of fun and sound fantastic. So others may disagree in my inner circle, though. <laughs> well, I need to go to South Korea now. I I know karaoke is a big thing there, and yeah, it seems like a great culture. It's a lot of fun. So a few areas I thought we would start, and I think let's start with a big transition for you. I would I would think as a marriage and family therapist, your background. I understand from the internet that your your styles would be around EFT and attachment theory, which I'm sure has helped you gain a unique perspective on relationships, the dynamic of how relationships functions or not function. This question's specific about your story, though, without with the risk of not wanting to sound like I'm labeling, but research has shown us that on average, therapists tend to avoid this thing we call money or the complexities that money can bring into the relationship dynamics. Can you share some insights on your story, if it's your relationship with money or your journey, which allowed you to delve deeper into the complexities of money and its impact on relationships? I think you're spot on just about the therapist piece and that we do, I say we more globally, tend to shy away from. That's been my experience professionally. Personally, I met my husband in college and he is actually a financial planner, a CFP. So a bit of an unusual matchup. Uh, I tell people I feel sorry for our kids sometimes <laughs> having a therapist as a mom and a financial planner as a father. I feel like it's, I, this is the best world. <laughs> Maybe, maybe again, we'll have to yeah. ask them in their adulthood. I'll send them to you and uh, yeah. you can you can do a podcast episode yeah. asking, asking them. But no, going back to you just a little bit more of kind of that story. Prior to meeting Clayton, I would consider myself to have been a pretty typical ignorant and naive around money and money management. 19-year-old would impulsively spend and buy things. One of my stories is that I went to Appalachian State University up here in the North Carolina mountains and we did skiing and, you know, all the mountain stuff and really wanted to learn snowboarding. Had never snowboarded before and impulsively like bought at 19 years old this really like bad A Roxy black and pink snowboard mm-hmm. and the matching boots and the gear. And I didn't know how to snowboard at all. Unfortunately, I wasn't very good when I went up and started learning and didn't really get any use out of my snowboard. And, you know, that was at 19 years old, a very, very impulsive, but also very expensive lesson to learn. And I'm thankful through my relationship with Clayton and just also some growth (laughs) and maturity on my end that more or less that type of mindset has really shifted for me. 
That's just on the personal side, though. Mm-hmm. It's helped me also just in business. I run my own, you know, clinical practice down here. And so from the business side of things, you know, being able to bounce ideas or concepts off of Clayton has been really helpful for me and just my own growth and understanding. But, you know, studying EFT and the therapy competencies, understanding why I think, feel, and do the way that I do around money, around, you know, relationships, what have you. You know, that insight has also helped me to be able to do some of my own work as well to where I think I make better money decisions now. I think my my net worth and bank account would show that. But uh, 19-year-old me was not so great at making those money decisions. And again, thankfully, I've been able to grow from that. It's so interesting how these money decisions so can imprint us so much. I don't know how old you are, but you don't look like you're 19 anymore. But yet <laughs> you could recall that so so vividly pink and black, Roxy, even the brand of the snowboard. My my question here is linking EFT to these memories. So what drew you to EFT, which I guess is emotional focus therapy for people who aren't familiar with the EFT. But with all your work now, seeing how our childhoods have been developed and these emotional events, whether it's around money or something, I guess let's start with what's happening with us. So like, why did you pick emotional focus therapy? And like, why are emotions so strong? to uh, impact our memories? Yeah, I started studying EFT in my grad program. So it's been close to 15 years now, which might tell you a little bit about how old I am uh, as well. So, you know, I came to discover it actually through understanding and learning more about Gottman, Dr. John Gottman, if you're familiar with him and his work. He is what actually led me to marriage and family therapy. And, you know, I started to feel with Gottman and this is nothing against his work or the clinical practice or applicability, but I just started to find it didn't fit for me. I I struggled to implement those practices in the therapy room. And again, for those that can, I think it's fantastic. It's well-researched, but for me, it just wasn't my style. It wasn't how my brain worked. Uh, And so I landed upon EFT kind of happenstance in my grad program and started studying it. And really what I loved about it, apart from the research at that time, was you know, it, it, from a therapy place, it's very experiential and it, it's intuitive. Uh, and I consider myself a pretty intuitive person being able to feel people. I know that sounds weird, right? But just being able to feel them, being able to also understand those early childhood experiences with their caregivers um, or the adults in their lives, what they saw as a child, uh, and then how they made sense of that in a childlike mind and how, you know, the sum of that right, culminated and, you know, compounded through the years of adolescence um, and young adult, how that shaped really, you know, their presentation and relationships. And really, like for me, when I started studying financial therapy, particularly, you know, Brad Klontz and Ted Klontz's work and around like just money stories, things of that nature, financial flashpoints, I was like, God, this is like EFT, just the money side of it, right? For looking at, you know, how I explain it to clients is why do you think, feel, and do what you do. That's a very, very, very basic crayons level kind of explanation for for what we're getting at. But, you know, in EFT, I'm trying to understand why clients think, feel, and do the way that they do in their relationships, how they relate to their partner. Where does that come from in their life? What were their early experiences and the meaning that they derived, you know, from those experiences? All of that is really important and impactful when it comes to 
being able to heal, transform, grow, all of those things. So kind of a long-winded answer there and getting to your question. But yeah, that's what, you know, and studying EFT, that's kind of how I came to it and at least my interest and continued interest in it. Mm. What a powerful question. You said simple, like the crayon example you gave, but why do you think, feel, and do what you do? We don't ask people that. I mean, you do, you're a therapist, but like in general, we ask, what do you want to do when you grow up so many times, but we don't help people make sense or organize these confusing, disorganized parts of ourselves that have been influenced so many different chapters of our lives. And then you add money to that, which is puts fuel to the fire. We never sit back to reflect on this. Why do you think, feel, and do what you do? This is the last question I'm, I'm going to ask about your story and feel free to answer this anyway. On the podcast, we ask a little bit about people's stories just to help the listeners understand that they have a story. We all have a story to tell. But when you reflect back on your story, when you asked yourself if you did anything, if you did at all, why do you think, feel, and do with money the way you do? What were some things or insights that you would be able to share with our audience as you did the work to uncover these unseen parts of yourself? Yeah, that work has been ongoing, right? So when we talk about work, and maybe you and your listeners know this, it's not like a one-time, like one and done kind of thing. So Shucks. Um, I know, right? <laughs> Dang it. The hope is, is that we're evolving yeah. as we get older. You know, but some of my work has led me to understand that, you know, in my childhood, I grew up very privileged in the sense that suburban town USA and in, in, in North Carolina and, you know, grew up with two working families uh, or two working parents, excuse me, um, both of kind of the professional setting. So from an income standpoint, my parents made decent money to the best of my knowledge, didn't have significant financial traumas, right? So at least none during my childhood. My father lost his job while I was in college and that was probably more impactful for my brother because he was younger at the time, still living at home. But, you know, my parents... And my own just money story, you know, we lived in an area that there were some affluent folks there and name brands were definitely a thing. Roxy. Um, so I am a Roxy, right? <laughs> I'm a, definitely a child of the 90s. You know, going and Gap was, I don't want to say a luxury brand, but at least for my family, like some of the items, like they're more costly. If I had to compare it to like today, like we were probably more target people. And, you know, we had folks that were, a little bit more kind of on the higher end, like Nordstrom uh, type people. <laughs> so, you know, and I watched like as a child, um, children who wore more of the name brand items, drove like kind of the nicer cars. From my perspective, in my opinion, seemed to be more popular. They gained more attention. They were better liked, at least to their face, maybe. <laughs> but that really sat with me as far as you know, if you want to be well-liked and well-received, maybe even perhaps enough, that might be a little deep, but, you know, then having name brand or more expensive items, quality, that's what you do. I know logically now that makes no sense. And that is <laughs> having name brand items, having luxury vehicles does not tie to my own, you know, sense of self-worth and who I am. And that's been one of the easier uh, money beliefs that I've been able to navigate and really quickly more or less sift through and figure out. But for a while, even into my young adulthood, like, you know, I wanted to shop at name brand stores and, 
even if that was stretching the budget and probably not financially in my best interest, that's that's what I wanted to do because I thought it made me better. Thought it made me look better. I see, unfortunately, women struggle a little bit more with that. That's just in my practice, though, more so than men. I'm sure that there's a great deal of men that also struggle with that. But I think, again, from my experience, it can be a pretty common common belief for for women. But that's a little bit about just some of mine. I mean, we could sit here all day and I could <laughs> talk through some of my work, but that's probably the most the most prominent one and also one that has been thankfully readily resolved on my end. Mm. And thank you for that. I, I always appreciate when our guests can share some insights because, you know, at times like you talk about these these kids in school who have the name brand things. Sometimes when we give people two mics, listeners might put them in that same sentiment that, you know, they've got everything figured out. They're not negative, not negative, but beliefs don't impact their money story and so forth. So I appreciate that. When you were talking about the clothes, it made me think of, I feel like we're around the same age just with the name brands you said, but tearaway pants, was that a thing in the US? Like Adidas? And I got the no surrender ones. They weren't the Adidas ones. They weren't the Adidas ones. And I want the Adidas ones. And it just like pained me. And then for Christmas, I got the Adidas ones and I was, I was, oh happy. man, I had one pair. I was a soccer player. And so I had a pair simply because it was part of our like uniform. Oh, yeah. Man, I love those things. <laughs> yeah. They were pretty awesome. They were pretty awesome. Maybe they'll come back. Let's hope so. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear these, how emotionally driven these experiences are that really shape not just money, like everything. And as a family therapist, you see, all these emotionally driven events that impact us today. What is the risk, if any at all, if we don't kind of dive in to do the work to untangle these parts of us that are confused? Because often I get people saying like, well, why would I dive into my money story? Like, it just seems complex. It seems like I'm, a, I'm opening up Pandora's box where I don't need to. So is there a risk to not doing this work? Should this be for everyone? What is your view on that as a therapist? Yes, there is a risk, I think, to it. However, I would also validate those listeners, individuals that feel like, I don't want to do that. Humans, we are wired, you know, not towards taking risk. I get it. It's scary. We don't want to do it. We're risk adverse when it comes to making change or diving into waters that maybe seem like they're unknown. So I would just validate that. That's the therapist part of me is that that's okay. It makes, but yes, there is a risk. I think the risk from a financial standpoint, you know, this more so than I do is just looking at, you know, wealth buildup and, and, and net worth. This other side of that just being, you know, accumulated debt. From an emotional standpoint, though, I think we really miss out on an opportunity to, you know, live and accomplish goals, dreams that maybe we have. I think sometimes while our brain is fantastic, it can come in and sabotage those desires, those inner desires that we want both presently and the future. And so, you know, I think we risk really being able to live to our full potential and really experience just, you know, the essence of what it means to to be human, mm-hmm. right? By not doing that work. So mm-hmm. kind of some 
bigger loaded stuff there, right? Yeah, I, I really appreciate how you answered that. And that's why I, I just really enjoy speaking to therapists. My background is a financial planner. And the way you just validate it, I think just gives people permission to just be okay and not be on the defensive. We're oh, financial planners, we're getting better. But if someone said, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing dollar cost averaging, or I'm not saving, we'll be like, what's wrong with you? Like, look at your right, charts. Right. It's all red. Like, figure, figure this out. Yeah. And then we just, we kind of just shame, shame, shame. And we wonder why they don't, don't implement. So I, I like this idea that I, I, I really admire from therapists that meeting people where they're at and helping them be seen. As a financial planner who thought I had things figured out over the last five years, I realized I had a completely unexamined story, especially money story, which led me to doing this podcast as I started to try to unravel all those areas of it. But I really have seen the the value of doing my own work and and not my own work by balancing my portfolio, trying to make myself look good by my net worth or whatever it is. The work of just understanding Sean has been a, a huge, huge value. It, it shifted my entire paradigm. I agree with you that we can't force that upon people. When we're ready, we're ready. But I like how you then kind of like put a torch, illuminate the, illuminated the path being like, it could be pretty rich, rich in the experiential way over here. So that brings me to BAM Financial Consulting. You've, you've started BAM Financial Consulting. What impact are you seeking to provide? Honestly, you just really summed it up for me with, with your story. That is the impact. I'm wanting to help advisors specifically who have a desire to learn and grow, do their own work in the process, understand themselves hopefully in an effort to maybe not respond as you demonstrated earlier so defensively that might be a turn off for clients right defense <laughs> is my middle name i'm really good at being defensive i hear you that's okay we all are to we <laughs> yeah. all are to a degree yeah. we all are but that's the impact that i'm wanting to make is to educate planners to come alongside them as well uh, be in the trenches with them i know that sounds weird but like i love sitting in the trenches with people and being like, this is messy. Like, let's figure it out. Like, let's look at your stuff. You don't have to do it alone. Even if it's scary, like I can illuminate that path as you said it. So that's the impact that I'm trying to make there on maybe an overview or a larger scale in a more detailed way, providing continuing eds for, for planners, um, consulting. So coming in and helping even on the business side of things, like what are your discovery meetings look like? If you have a desire to implement more communication or what I would call maybe mental health strategies, financial therapy strategies, let's look at doing that. Or if you just need like a cheerleader that's like, hey, you're managing that client who has some severe financial anxiety really well. I can be that for you, for you too. So I hope that I answered that maybe oh, yeah. in a little bit more of a detailed, detailed way, but that's the impact that I'm trying to make. Yeah, I think it's it's great. As we discussed, therapists tend to have that money avoidance. My observation of financial planners is that we tend to avoid the, the mental health side or the, the relationship side. And, and, you know, no fault of a financial planner, the training, the system that we, we subscribe to. But I think it's great when therapists and financial planners can share and, I guess, have a reciprocal relationship. And it really sounds like you're bringing the work that, um, as I started diving more and more into therapy and the modalities, Virginia Satire was someone who kept coming up, coming up, coming up. And she really focused on family therapy and came up with that idea, not came up with it, but promoted self as a therapist. 
which I like a quote, and I brought a quote here. It says, can we accept as a given that the self of a therapist is an essential factor in the therapeutic process? If this turns out to be true, it will alter our way of teaching therapists as well as treating patients. And I really like this because I talked about illuminating the path. It seems like if I haven't gone down, if I'm a therapist, which I'm not, but if I was, or a financial planner, if I haven't gone down that path, it might be hard for me to illuminate the path or help sit beside someone in the trenches to use the words you use, a client. So can you touch on this idea of uh, self of the financial planner and what benefit not only does that have to the clients, but the financial planner? Some of the work that I feel most passionate about is helping helping planners do their own work. I think that as you were talking about and doing your own work, it helps you to show up in a, in a better way, in a, in a different way, in a more connected way, in a grounded way. And clients, they feel that. They know that. They have a sense you know, for that. They may not be able to articulate it, but you know, they might eventually speak with their feet and you know, leave and move on. I think the financial strategy piece, that is imperative, obviously, to the work that you do, but the client relationship piece is also just as important. And a piece of that client relationship is doing your own work to understand how you show up. Why do you get defensive when a client continues to rebuff you or interrupt you in a client meeting or minimize maybe your suggestion or strategy? Why do you get so defensive and so frustrated? Or why do you roll your eyes and sigh very deeply every time you see that particular client on your schedule or come across your phone? Being able to do that that work, I think from an ethics place too, helps you to practice more ethically, but also just to help you to understand yourself and then to be able, as you were talking about, to relate to other clients in a more meaningful way. On this topic of the work, in that example, you said if we're rolling our eyes or we're getting defensive, not all the time, but the, most likely if I haven't done the work of understanding where that stems from. But what, what's happening if I feel myself getting defensive or annoyed or rolling my eyes? Like I could justify and say, well, that person's wasting my time. But what's really happening inside of us when we have this un, unchecked or unrecognized work? Yeah, typically there's some type of earlier connection that's happening, maybe subconsciously. We're reminded maybe of a previous event or a particular person. We're experiencing some counter-transference there with the client. I'm not sure if you've got into transference or counter-transference there, but you know, we're putting a face on that client, right? From maybe someone before that we had a negative interaction with, maybe perhaps our mom or our dad you know, terrible second grade teacher, what have you, I don't know. But, you know, being able to tune into that and understand what's the meaning that's being made in that moment. You know, I'm responding this way. Why am I responding this way? Oh, it's because they're annoying. But is it that they're really annoying? Or is it that the way that they come across reminds you of something a bit deeper or troubling or frustrating from your past? So I think being able to understand and do that level of work, the why you think, feel, and do, coming back to my crayons explanation, help not only just resolve some of your own distress, frustration, or tension, right? Because how crappy is that to see certain people on your mm-hmm. on your client log or your schedule and then to feel like a level of just, oh, yeah, this is, ugh, you know, 
no one wants that experience. So being able to do that work can help eliminate or reduce some of that, but also just to better relate to those clients, have more empathy and compassion, maybe for their, in a way that could reduce some of their own, let's just say maybe anxiety or troublesome, annoying behaviors as well. You know, I think that that idea of the transference and is part of like the, the work is eliminating some of that. The first time I was exposed to this idea, of course, my defending and deflecting came up like, no, 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 no. Then as I like, kind of surrendered to the idea of just sit with this, I was like, whoa, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. so interesting how like things just start to experience things different. I think naively, sometimes practitioners, mental health, financial planning, what have you. But I think naively, sometimes we think that, oh, that won't happen for me. That won't happen to me right? Naively, arrogantly, whichever mm-hmm. one you want to choose to label it as. But mm-hmm. it does, like it happens for for all of us. Like we all, we all experience that, myself included. I've had clients who have reminded me of family members and it is very, it can be very unnerving and distressing, you know, prior to, but then also once you realize it and you're like, yuck, like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, dang it. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard work I'm doing that. But, you know, undoubtedly, I think I'm open to being wrong here, but you know, I think and believe that it happens to all of us. So being aware of it and doing that work is it really just helps to eliminate or reduce the negative potential or side effects that could come with that from not doing the work at some point in your career. So whether you've seen this in your clinical office in marriage and family therapy or working with a financial planner doing this work, when that discomfort shows up, it could be intimidating. The discomfort of doing our work, of changing, like meaningful change. Are there techniques, tools, exercises that you've encouraged people to lean into to, to help get through that discomfort that often comes with reflecting on our own way of being? Yeah, I will do it in session or like live with if I've been meeting with a planner, maybe via Zoom. And even for myself. So I have a clipboard and I have the words think, feel, do. I feel like this is going to go on my tombstone. Uh, <laughs> these three words, right? <laughs> for myself and with my clients that are in the room with me, like, I'll slow them down. It's easier to have someone else slow you down than to slow yourself down sometimes. So I recognize that. But let's take a moment, let's pause and let's think about what are the thoughts? What are the cognitions? Like, what are the thoughts that are coming through our head, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, and just, you know, what they are. No elaborating, no judging, just what are the thoughts? What am I feeling? So naming emotions here. Some people, they talk about what they're feeling and they're not really naming a feeling word. So if we need to get out one of those emotion wheels, we can do that. Those were <laughs> helpful. One. They are helpful. I have one I have one of those as well. So they're helpful. But let's name what the emotion is. I find it can be helpful sometimes too for people who maybe perhaps struggle with identifying an emotion because that's not always very easy, um, is to maybe think about where they feel it in their body. So experientially, like, what are you feeling in your body? Maybe like your hands are tight, your chest is tight. Maybe you can feel like that knot in your throat, or maybe you feel like some flutters in your stomach. Maybe your feet feel very like restless and that energy there of like wanting to like get up and, and leave. But identifying or maybe connecting also since from a sensation standpoint, what is going on in your body? That can be very helpful as well. And then from a do standpoint, what do we need to do right now in this moment to just settle down some of those emotions and 
some of those thoughts that are going on, right? Because if we don't, the risk becomes that we may go on autopilot and just react potentially in a way that's unfavorable or in in a regrettable way. And we don't want to do that, particularly with our clients as an advisor. Like you don't want to do that as a professional, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, you know, overreact or even underreact as well. Walking through that exercise in particular can be really helpful in just settling our nervous system down, calming down that limbic system, right? That emotion center kind of in our brain. But primary really is calming down from a brain standpoint, the limbic system, the emotions, getting back to baseline a little bit and allowing really, you know, that logic center to kick back on that prefrontal cortex so that we can make like informed decisions and respond in a way that feels good for us. Thank you for that. That is a great exercise. Financial planner, therapist, or just a person. We all can do that. I feel better because I was, uh, I did this exercise while you're talking. I was thinking, I said someone's name wrong. She probably thinks I'm crazy. I was feeling a little anxious over saying that. And I was feeling it in my gut, but now now it has dissipated. So thank you for that. (laughs) That's awesome. That's Super awesome that you were able to like do that like so quickly. And I think what you just showed is really important because when some people hear the word like, I got to do an exercise, they're like, oh my God, like I don't have time to do an exercise when I'm in a client meeting. And maybe, maybe not, but this is something that you just did so quickly, you know, with me while I was talking, right? And look at what a difference that made for you just from a regulation standpoint, right? So that you could continue, you know, at least with our time here together showing up in a way that you want to, in a way that feels good for you. So kudos to you. That's amazing. It was you. I just listened. I used to see exercises and be like, oh, that's a great exercise. I'm going to do that with my clients, but I wouldn't do it. (laughs) And now like, I've just, I love exercises. So they're very helpful. With all this conversation that we've been talking about is the impact of money stories that impact how we think, feel, and behave with money. We transition in talking about doing the work ourselves, especially from a financial planner's perspective. Now, continuing on with your expertise. So you have this this experience with marriage family therapy and now with money and the experience we have with money. When you blend those together, for individuals who are trying to co-mingle their monies together and they have these differing money stories that are often unconscious, first off, what do you find usually comes up as a predominant wedge or speed bump in relationships when they start commingling money together. Let's start there. What is a common thing that maybe a lot of the listeners, if they're a practitioner or financial planner or just someone listening, we all may be in a relationship. What are common speed bumps that come up in our relationships with money? So for the couples that I see, some of this varies and depends upon whether this is a first marriage, how old the individuals are at the point in which they're getting married removing maybe some of those contexts. Some of the first early issues really actually center around power and control. I hear couples say, well, I don't want to have to ask permission um, or... <laughs> I'm married and I'm a financial planner. I've heard that one. And Yeah, right? Yeah. It pains, it pains me now. My response no. was, I'm a financial planner. You should, you should listen to this free advice. No, I wouldn't say yeah. that, but <laughs> I kind of believe that. Yeah. What was I yeah, wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, and I get it. Like, this is probably for another podcast episode, but just with women coming, you know, more into the workforce over the last like 30, 40 years and developing just their own like money autonomy, 
I think it's put that like power dynamic there in, in, in relationships around money more so than probably what we saw the first half of, you know, the 1900s, 50, 60, 100 years ago, right? But that's what I hear, at least in the room with me, is there's some level of just power, worry, confusion, curiosity. Unfortunately, it can come out in a lot of defensiveness or just like just rigid presentation. I will do this. I won't do this. You know, I'm not willing to put them on this account. They can put me on their accounts, but no, I'm not putting them on this account. And certainly that's not for all couples, but power and control, that dynamic really comes up first. And also, you know, this whole spender saver dynamic, I don't, I don't prefer or particularly like to label one partner as one because I think we are both as humans. If we look at things on a spectrum, maybe is an easier way. So some of us maybe adopt a little bit more spending, lean a little bit more to the spending heavy. Some of us more maybe to like the saving or to what degree. But, you know, that dynamic certainly comes up where maybe perhaps one partner spends or is a little more free, freely spending than another partner. So there's a value difference there, maybe even perhaps a difference in money scripts. But those are the early, at least, dynamics there. Very often as well, I guess I should also mention that we get into financial secrets. So couple hasn't been married for very long and one partner discloses that there's a lot of debt that's been accumulated and the one partner wasn't aware of all the debt (laughs) that another partner had and maybe perhaps for that partner the one that's discovering the debt it can feel like a betrayal to them not to say they wouldn't have married this partner but you know maybe there would have been some different conversations around that so those are some of just the early things that i see crop up at least between couples um at least more commonly i find it interesting how you talk about the spending and saviors for example or hiding accounts I feel like those can often be kind of the the easy things to focus on. Like, hey, we don't align with our spending here. And they're easy to focus that the issue is actually you spend too much or you save too much or vice versa. But from a therapist perspective, do you find that there's probably something deeper going on that is often missed, especially around the relational side or can't communicate? But I find we focus on the numbers or, oh, it's impacting our savings. But I feel like there's this, maybe this divisive wedge slowly kind of separating us from each other. Man, Sean, you're like my jam right now because that's <laughs> my argument really. And I know there's some mixed feelings about this and folks have differing opinions, but I come from the standpoint that money is a content issue. So when couples are arguing, it's a content issue. The context, what's below the surface, what's below the waters, right? If we imagine like an iceberg, perhaps there's a lot more depth there using just and pulling from some EFT like language. This is where kind of I think about and kind of bring EFT into the room working with financial issues. But there's meaning that's been derived there, whether we're miscommunicating about something, whether there's a value difference. But oftentimes for couples, at least, there is an underlying meaning. Maybe it's that there's a worry, perhaps, or a fear that their partner at the end of the day isn't really going to be there for them, isn't going to show up for them in the way that they need them to. It comes out right in a way of arguing about this person's spending 
you know, their partner's excessive spending in their opinion. But yeah, I firmly believe that there is deeper issues that are below the surface. And so they come out though from a content, again, a content standpoint is arguing about money, saving, what have you. But yeah, there, I, there's always something below the surface. Mm. Do you think there's any, I, I'm just going on a whim here. Do you think there's any relationship between, um, like there's, there's studies on the U-shape of happiness. So like in the late 40s, when kids start getting older, people, I mean, we call it the midlife crisis. Do you think there's any correlation between this, like how we ignored this deeper under the water stuff, but then we're getting later in life and we're like, wait a second, I'm not, I'm not satisfied. I think so from what I see. And I see couples across, you know, the age ranges. I have the privilege to at least so couples in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even some in their 60s. And yeah, I think that from my couples who are, I would say, 45 to 65, I hear them talk about like, oh, we were just on autopilot. We were just raising mm. kids. Like we weren't even thinking. We were just trying to survive. How uh, They weren't intentional. And look, I don't, I don't know much about you personally, but I'm a mom of two kids. And we're very active, you know, kids activities, um, both my partner, Clayton and I working. So I get it. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is like, it feels like survival mode sometimes. And to stop and attune to deeper level things, it's like, man, I got to pick the kids up and like figure out dinner and throw in laundry. I don't have time to sit <laughs> here and do this deep dive exploration as to why I'm like feeling this way. So I think you're right. I think people come out of kind of later in life when Maybe perhaps for in their experience, things are slowing down a bit and stuff starts coming more to the forefront and the surface. And they're like, oh, oh my gosh, you know, from a happiness standpoint, like it wasn't very happy actually (laughs) during that time. Your answer just makes me think why we need to continue doing the work with therapists and financial planners because, you know, yeah, I have two young kids, four and six, and my wife and I both work. So I'm busy. I know that is something's forced upon me to realize that maybe it was me tightening the chain as I I thought all the external things were, but it was me. And this is where the money side comes in is we're so programmed to follow a certain script to be enough. When we have this, we're always aspiring, 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 where I think while it's so hard, and I mean, I've had privilege to be able to sit and take some time to think, I know that, but there's a richness to being able to do that, to kind of, I guess, take the pen back to start writing our own stories versus what the social narrative prescribes to me, which I mean, I battle with every day. But um, yeah, likewise, too, right? Even though I'm a therapist, and I think there's an assumption there, maybe other mental health practitioners feel this way. And I think maybe there's also a stereotype around financial planners, too, around being able to have all their money stuff together. I think sometimes people think mental health practitioners, they think that like we have everything like figured out, we don't fight in our relationships, like. We understand ourselves so very deeply and like, I mean, we're human and, you know, I don't have my stuff figured out in a way that I would like. There's some things I do, but there are many aspects of my life that I don't. And it is hard to your point. I feel privileged as well to be able to do the work, my self-work in the way that I can. I've often thought that if I wasn't in this field, would I have the insight and awareness to be able to. And I don't know. I don't like thinking about that too much because it might make me feel bad. Maybe the answer is no. But it's hard stuff. It's not easy. I think continuing the conversation and continuing to seek out, whether it's through therapy or just your own self 
exploration is is important. I, I hope people, it's a journey more than like a, again, one time kind of conversation action item that we just check off. Throughout um, trying to figure out my story, I did a lot of reflecting and journaling and I ended up collaborating with a musician friend and we wrote a full album on my money story. And the last song is called, called The Mountain Without a Top. So this idea that we never, ever arrive. I love that. Uh, I love yeah. that. In a very like vulnerable moment, if you ever felt called to share that, I would love to hear the, I would love to hear the album. What a cool oh, thing to do. It's on, it's on Apple Music. <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to yeah. go check it out. <laughs> I even wrote a song to my inner money critic called Mr. Shine on there. I love the, <laughs> I love this. This might be the coolest thing I've heard in a very long time. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. Okay. Enough about me. So my last question here is, let's say you're at end of life. It doesn't matter how old you are. You're at end of life and you're sitting on a front porch at some location that brings you complete peace. And you're on this front porch and you pull out a notebook and a pen and decide to write your kids' kids a letter on what you learned about having a happy, healthy relationship with money, what would be a theme to that letter? Oh, man. Okay. I have to first not think about that too deeply because I might cry. What a very wonderful question. Okay. What would I write? What would be the theme to my grandchildren, essentially, right? About their money story. You know, my hope for them as my kids and any future generations that come thereafter is that they have the courage to just do their own work, whatever that story ends up being. Like my hope for them truly is that they have the courage and feel brave enough uh, and supported enough that they can just do their own work. And I feel confident that if they step foot on that path of doing their own work, they'll figure things out and whatever ends up being will be. Wow, I really like that. I mean, you could give them a a truckload of gold, but if they can't do their own work, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Ashley, I really enjoyed this. I'm sorry if it felt like I got a three therapy session out of this, but uh, for, <laughs> no, for, uh, no. for listeners who want to find out more about BAM, work you're doing, where would you point them to online? Yeah, they can visit my website at bamfcc.com. I'm also on Twitter at BAM Consults and on LinkedIn, you can look me up, Ashley Kwame LMFT. I don't think there's another Ashley Kwame LMFT on there mm -hmm. that I've seen, but yes, pretty accessible online. My contact information are on those forums. So I love chatting and talking all things financial psychology, financial therapy. So I encourage folks to reach out and connect. And I saw you have some upcoming programs I do, yes. Just actually uh, approved as of yesterday by the CFP board. Those renewals got approved. I have two trainings coming up. Dates are listed on my website. I guess there's several. But the first is a financial therapy 101 intensive. That's a, approved for 9.5 hours of continuing ed. And that's a deep dive into financial therapy competency and ways that planners specifically can implement them into their practice. And then the other is communication and strategies that guide toward change. So helping planners with communication strategies that they can, again, implement that will help clients hopefully be able to change some of those behaviors um, instead of them staying stuck. So that's been approved for 3.5 hours of continuing ed. And so the dates, again, are listed in prices as well as more detailed information about those courses. Great. Well, we'll include that all in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining us to share your 
insights and wisdom with us. I enjoyed it, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Before you head out, if you found value, if you enjoyed this conversation with Ashley, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. As I mentioned, those definitely help. Also, check out the show notes for all the links to find Ashley. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.